You are about to listen to a sermon from Common Ground Church in Rapid City, South Dakota. We hope to see you in person. For more information, visit commongroundcma.org. Much better. All right. Oh, good morning. And hey, welcome to what is part three of our series on missions. Um, so if you've been with us um, either last week or the week before, we've been talking about the, about the mission of God in the world and our place in that and our role. And we've explained that the mission of God to the world is called the Missio Dei. And that typically any conversation of missiology will begin with this reality, the reality that God is a missionary God. And that out of that, as we are called to be his image bearers, as we are called to be his people, that we are a missionary people. And so this means that in some sense, every Christian is a missionary. That every Christian should live this missional life, and that's what we've been we've been looking into. That we share this responsibility and this and this mission with Him. And two weeks ago, uh, we began this whole topic, and we pointed out Jesus's instructions to the first missionaries. And we prayed that prayer, Lord, would you raise up workers for the harvest? And we looked at Luke chapter ten there, but we didn't make it very far in Luke chapter ten. Uh, we only made it to verse two. And there's actually more to the story than that. Um, there's actually more that we didn't get to. And so, even though it's a bit redundant, we're going to go back. Uh, we're going to go back to Luke chapter 2, and we're going to look at the instructions that Jesus had for these first missionaries uh, before we just move on and say that, oh, we've covered it. Um, because, really, as we study the Scripture, the point of studying it is not just to take in as many verses as possible and just to have as much information enter our minds as possible and cover as much ground. Um, but the purpose is transformation. Um, to have our hearts and our minds and our lives changed and shaped by the scripture. And frankly, some, some of those times it's going to take a revisit or two. It's going to take time in the word. So that's where we're going to be today. But it's going to be a bit before we get there to Luke chapter 10, so glad you have it ready. But as we continue to talk about God's mission to the world and, and our part in that, especially here in Rapid City, now I know a lot of us, we're familiar with that idea. We're familiar with the Great Commission, that he entrusted his work to his disciples. And one of the things that we'll see in this passage is that Jesus did not just entrust the work to those 12 that he had set apart, but he entrusted this work to 72 people, to a, a much larger group of ordinary, regular people like you and I. That he empowered this big group of 72 people. That's quite a few. I mean, that's pretty close to our numbers in here. And he empowered all those people and equipped them to carry on his work without him. And this is significant, so we're going to look into some of that. And the first question that a lot of people ask is, Okay, first off, why 72? And you're thinking good. You probably have good biblical instincts in knowing that that number probably means something. Because in Scripture and in Hebrew thought, numbers always are representative of something. It's not just a random quantity. It's not just that he happened to have 72 guys there. All of these numbers are significant. And we know that, especially as we look at the 12, right? The 12 disciples that Jesus chose to be his closest. You see, the 12, the other place that we see the number 12 is in the 12 tribes of Israel. And Jesus selecting 12 disciples, in a sense, 
was showing that, that his disciples now, his kingdom, is not just based on the ethnicities and the tribes that the twelve tribes of Israel were on, but just on ordinary, regular people, on people that he would choose, not on certain ethnic groups, and that this new covenant was through faith, not just through being a child of Abraham. And so the twelve is significant, and now we see that the seventy-two is significant. Now, some manuscripts, if you start studying it in depth, will say 70, and some will say 72. They're kind of both in there. It's a little ambiguous. But either way, both of these numbers, as we look back at kind of where these come from, are significant, regardless of if it's 70 or 72. You see, the first place, kind of the first theory of where we see this number come, is in Genesis chapter 10, when Noah's family came out of the ark. And they were said to number about 70 or 72. It's funny because in there the manuscripts are a little ambiguous too. Some say seven, some say seventy-two. And so, to the Israelite mind, when they see the word seventy or seventy-two, it's their thought that all the people in the world descended from that original seventy or that original seventy-two. And so, this number represents everyone in the world. Seventy-two people. That's everyone in the world. And by choosing this number, Jesus is in a sense making that connection and saying, now my gospel is for everyone in the world. Another theory comes from um, the book of Numbers and the book of Exodus. It comes from the time when, when Moses was a little overwhelmed with the amount of work that he had with the Israelites. And so God chose, told him to choose 72 elders to help govern this body, to help run the country, essentially. And ever since Moses chose those 70 and those 72, the Jewish Sanhedrin, or essentially their Supreme Court, has run on 72 people. They have had 72 leaders. And so that connection is also in place here, as Jesus explains that his kingdom is now different. And he set up kind of a new Supreme Court, in a sense, a new governing body. And so his gospel is for all people, all descendants of Noah's family. And the governance of this kingdom rests on him and not on any other system that's put in place. So this is a, it's a profound state, just this little number, 72. This is a big deal. So that's a bit of the context. A bit of the context here as we look into it. And what we're going to see here is that Jesus instructs these 72. This big statement that I'm sending these workers out to build a new kingdom and to spread the gospel for all people. And he has some very specific instructions that I think are important for us to lean into today. As we consider how we might participate in the COJ. How we might play our role in the responsibility of seeking and saving the lost. We're going to look at his instructions to these 72. And really, I think they're kind of four main behaviors, or four main things that we'll find in Luke chapter 10 here. And these four things are, the first one, which we looked at last week, we start with prayer. We start before anything else with prayer. We commit to community. We contend for the faith by depending on Him. And we choose death over work. And so that's what we're going to see as we boil down all these instructions of Jesus, it's those four main things. And we're going to go through each one. But if you have your Bible open, 
We have some scattered throughout the building, or if you just Google Luke chapter 10, we're going to be reading from verse 1 all the way through verse 21. And the words will be on the screens up here as well. So Luke chapter 10, verse 1. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. He told them, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Go, I am sending you out like lambs among wolves. Do not take a purse or bag or sandals, and do not greet anyone on the road. When you enter a house, first say, peace to this house. If someone who promotes peace is there, your peace will rest on them. If not, it will return to you. Stay there, eating and drinking whatever they give you, for the worker deserves his wages. Do not move around from house to house. When you enter a town and you are welcome to eat what is offered to you, heal the sick who are there and tell them that the kingdom of God has come near to you. But when you enter a town and you are not welcomed, go into its streets and say, Even the dust of your town will be wiped from our feet as a warning to you. Yet be sure of this, the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than you. And you, Capernaum, you will be lifted to the heavens. No, you will go down to Hades. Whoever listens to you listens to me. Whoever rejects you rejects me. But whoever rejects me rejects him who sent me. The 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit in your name. And he replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. At that time, Jesus, full of joy through the Holy Spirit, said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and the learned, and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do, that all things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows who the Son is except the Father. And no one knows who the Father is except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. And then he turned to his disciples and he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see. Blessed are the eyes that see. So there's a lot there. There's a lot in that passage. And the first thing to notice before we get into the behaviors, the first thing that Jesus encourages these 72 missionaries with is the fact that the harvest is plentiful. That's how he starts this whole teaching. The harvest is plentiful. There is a lot of work to do. And while we addressed it last week, that probably the first thing this should do is to humble us and cause us to realize that we need to pray to God for help, that there's more to do than we can do. But at the same time, this is also very encouraging. It's very encouraging to hear that the harvest is plentiful and there's a lot of opportunity for the gospel out there. Essentially, people are hungry for God. That there are a lot of seeds that have been planted that are springing up, ready to be harvested. 
And it's plentiful. It's everywhere. And this is encouraging because it's kind of contrary to the narrative of our day, is it not? I mean, for the last 10 years, maybe even for my entire lifetime, all we've heard about is the decline of the church in the West, right? All we've talked about is how millennials don't want anything to do with church. They don't want to be in church. And now the Zoomers have come along and they're even worse, right? (laughs) They don't want anything to do with church and young people are not there at all. And it's encouraging to me to be in this room and to hear the stories from young people in here and see that Common Ground is kind of rewriting that narrative. Now, show of hands, who in here is under the age of 35? Do you realize that you are a statistical anomaly? (laughs) That people like you do not sit in church on Sunday mornings. Do you realize that? That you are an endangered species. (laughs) That essentially most Christian leaders in America today want to capture you and study you so that they can reproduce you. (laughs) Honestly, you are rare. And we acknowledge that, that that narrative out there is true, that, okay, the trends are that young people are not in church, that young people do not have faith in Jesus, that young people don't want anything to do with religion. But frankly, that means the harvest can be even more plentiful. There are even more people out there who can give their lives to Jesus. And as bleak as things might look right now, what do you think the situation was when Jesus sent out these early disciples? It was pretty bleak then. The harvest is still plentiful. And even though we're kind of in the midst of this large, ongoing decline of the church in the United States, and and we've moved into what sociologists refer to as a post-Christian culture, where the main values are just a response to and against historical Christian beliefs, nonetheless, the church still has a future. Nonetheless, the harvest is still plentiful. That in the middle of all this pruning, where, okay, maybe it looks like the crop has been pruned back too far, we know that pruning always anticipates new growth. And when it looks like maybe the tide has gone out way too far, we know that the further out it goes, the bigger and stronger it comes back in. And so while we might be in this season at the moment, we acknowledge that nonetheless, even with this backdrop, the harvest is that God is still planting seeds. That even though the church has been somewhat disappearing, that on the horizon there is significant reappearing coming. And especially if we lean in to participate in the mission of God. So before we go anywhere else, recognize that the harvest is plentiful, that these words of Jesus were just as true in the first century as they are today. That people are hungry for God, and they need Him. And the harvest is indeed still plentiful. So from that, we start with prayer. There's more work out there that we can do on our own. And this is what we talked about last week, um, and we're going to come back to it. And that's kind of the thing with prayer, is you have to go back to it over and over again, right? We don't just say, oh yeah, you know, I pray for that person and done, it's either going to happen or not. God calls us to continually come back to Him in prayer. And so we do that with this situation. Because the first thing that Jesus instructed these missionaries to do was to pray. And I'll admit, this is, this is hard for me to do. 
When I see a task that's going to require a lot of work, when I see a harvest that's plentiful, my first thought is, all right, I'm going to drop the plan. All right, I need to reach out to a bunch of people. I need to get prepared to work overtime. I need to drink a lot of coffee. But no, Jesus says, before any of that, start with prayer. Before any of that, pray to the God of the harvest to send more workers into his field. And then we leaned into that last week. Um, I hope that, that you were able to pray that prayer. God, would you send more workers into the harvest? Would you begin with me? Because I think that's the start of any missional life, to pray to the God of the harvest, to send workers, to raise up workers. And then as we pray that prayer, we ask him to start with us. And I hope you prayed that last week, and I hope you continue to pray that throughout the week this week. Every day, would you pray, God, would you raise me up and send me to the harvest? And would you raise others up and send them to the harvest? Okay, continually come back to this. I won't come back to this every single sermon, but I'm really tempted to. That we start from this place every single time. We start with prayer. And the second thing to know in this passage that we see is that we commit to community. Okay, here's the thing. Mission is not done alone. Mission is done in community. We see in verse 1 that Jesus sent them out in pairs. There are no lone wolves in God's mission. He doesn't call us to follow him in isolation. Our faith is not just Jesus and me. There's a call to relationship, to, to partnership, to friendship, and to community. And so if you want to reach... Rapid City, or wherever you are going to live, or currently live, then you need to grab your best friend with you as you go on a mission. Then you need to grab community and family around you. This is something that we can't do alone. We do it in Paris, and we do it in community. And as we've seen, you know, the whole basis for our mission, is it flows out of who God is, right? The Missio Dei flows out of God being a missionary God. And so God is, is the why. He's the, the heart behind the mission. And it flows out of his character. But also, even how we do it flows out of his character as well. Because you see, this call to do mission in community is the way that God has always done mission and the way God has always operated in the world anyway. Because God exists in community. God is a, a communitarian God. He is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so we were created out of this community to then go on mission in community as well. And so it flows out of who he is. And it also just has a lot of benefits. Just not doing it alone. Okay? When we take our best friend along, when we interact with those we're trying to reach with the gospel, and we do so in community, there's a big benefit to just having their gifts prop up our weaknesses. We know that all parts of the body are necessary for healthy functioning, that others have gifts and skills that we don't have on our own. We know that others might be able to see the blind spots that maybe we couldn't really see, or that others can lift us up when we fall. And bringing people along is important. One of the best things you can do if there's someone in your life that you are actively trying to share the gospel with, is don't just take that as simply your responsibility, but... Bring some of your Christ-following friends along. Introduce them to other people. If you're going to spend time with them, 
Don't think this is all on you and you have no help. It's your project. First off, when they become a Christian, um, they're going to need more friends than just you anyway. <laughs> so you might as well start those relationships already. And don't do this alone. Okay. Being in community is good. It's great. The greatest work in the harvest field will be done if you do it together, not if you do it alone. And so we commit to community. Now the third thing, we contend by depending. If we're going to contend for our faith, then we depend on God. And this comes from a few different places. In verses 3 and 4, Jesus said this. He said, Go, I am sending you out like lambs among wolves. Do not take a purse or bag or sandals, and do not greet anyone on the road. And in verse 16, he also said that whoever listens to you listens to me. Whoever rejects you rejects him. But whoever rejects me rejects him who sent me. And both of these instructions are essentially instructions to depend on him. Okay, first he said, I'm sending you out like lambs among wolves. Meaning, it's dangerous out there, right? People are not always going to just love you and accept you in. And if they do love you, well, just like a wolf likes a lamb, they like him probably for the wrong reasons. Okay, you are like lambs and they're like wolves. And the first thing to note about lambs is this. They're kind of useless. They're good for eating and that's, uh, that's about it. When it comes to defense, they have no natural defenses. That's why the shepherd's job is so hard to protect these lambs from wolves. Because lambs and sheep, they have no interest in self-defense. All they want to do is get fed and reproduce. And frankly, as a missionary, that's kind of the focus anyway. All we care about is being fed and reproducing. In a little different way, you know, born of the Spirit and born again. But nonetheless, it's still true. We're not out there... Seeking to get in a fight. That we are lands among wolves. And this is something that we have to understand in our cultural moment. As we've acknowledged, the culture has caused a lot of decline in the church. A lot of people then think, well, you know, the church needs to rise up. And we're in this culture war. We need to fight back. We need to argue people into the faith. And the easy response to those people is, okay, let's read our Bibles. Now it looks like we're lands. Uh, we're not the wolves. That Jesus is the Lion of Judah, <laughs> and we are just his people. That the gospel is spread, that the mission of God is accomplished, not through fighting, not through arguing, but through love, through the preaching of the gospel. We are lambs among wolves. We depend on him to take care of those things. We don't take matters into our own hands. And say, well, these people are against me, so i got to go against them. Jesus said, no, that fight is not yours. That's between me and them, not between you and them. And this is something that, frankly, is hard. Something the disciples struggled with as well. Jesus taught them this over and over again. But nonetheless, when he explained to them he was going to be arrested and he was going to die, they freaked out, right? They couldn't handle it. In Matthew chapter 16, he told them his whole plan. He was going to get arrested and die on the cross. And he explained that to them. And then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. And he said, never, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And Peter's like, you know, let me out. Like, we'll stop this from happening. 
Which if you read on the story, Peter again still tried to do. And Jesus had to rebuke him again. And Jesus turned to Peter and he said, Get behind me, Satan. And Satan is not just a pet name. That's literally Satan. He said, You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. And then Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. He said, What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they've done. So as we work towards the Missio Dei, there might be a time for defending the oppressed and for for speaking out against injustice, but when it comes to those things that come at us, when it comes to the spreading of the gospel, we're like lambs among wolves. We don't take things into our own hands. We don't argue people into the faith or rise up and fight against it. There's a famous Christian apologist who always said that if you were going to argue someone into believing in Jesus, you might as well punch them in the nose and then give them a flower to smell. And so we don't take things into our own hands. We depend on God. And this is particularly important when the mission of God gets hard, right? When sharing your faith doesn't always result in lives changed. Because that will happen. People might, in a sense, dislike you because of it. They might distance themselves from you because of it. And Jesus prepares his followers for that. He prepares them not to take it personally. He said, if they reject you, they're actually rejecting me. It's not between you and them, it's between me and them. And I think there are times when, okay, maybe it can be us. Like, we can be a jerk and share the gospel. That's, that's possible. We can do it the wrong way. But nonetheless, even if we do it perfectly, there's still a chance. There's still a high chance that, it was, that they will still reject who Jesus is. And Jesus says here, don't take it personally. He says, some are going to reject you, but some are people of peace. They are open, they are hungry. But some are going to be closed off. And that's between me and them, not between you and them. And the fact is... You know, a lot of people like to say, well, if we just get mission and evangelism right, no one can reject Jesus, right? No one can do it. They just can't resist. He's too great. And that makes sense. I don't understand how someone could. That makes sense. And that sells a book a lot better if you say, like, oh, I have a method that will be 100% effective. You know, that hooks an audience if you say, if you do this, it will be 100% effective. But it's just not what we see in the Bible. People even rejected Jesus in his day. They had encounters with his physical presence on earth, and they still rejected him. John chapter 6. Jesus had just performed the miracle where he took a little kid's lunch, and he fed 5,000 people. And people spent an entire day, some think an entire weekend, sitting under his teaching. And then as his teaching went on, all these people that had witnessed his great miracle and his great teaching eventually decided, well, I think his teaching is a little too hard to follow might be a little too difficult. And in John chapter 6, many complain, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept this? 
And then it's recorded in verse 66 that from this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. They were dead. So it's possible. Or even we think about Judas. Judas, who spent probably around three years with Jesus, still ended up selling him out and walking away. And so that's why Jesus instructed us not to take it personally. Um, that this mission will be hard. But if we are faithful to his mission, and it's hard, then we know that it's, it's not on us. That we don't have to take that personally. That we depend on him to come through. Not on us. It's not on our backs. And Jesus also called his followers to depend on him when it comes to provision and finances. As we see in verse 4. Right? Jesus said, do not take a, bur- a purse or bag or sandals, and do not greet anyone on the road. And he instructed them to stay with the hosts that take them in. Whoever takes you in, stay there. And when Jesus said this, he didn't say, like, you have to do this barefoot and no purses or anything. He was saying, he was talking about extra stuff. Don't bring all these extra changes of clothes. Don't bring your whole bank account with you. Don't bring what was basically like a beggar's bag. A bag that you are planning to use to take in all these donations. He said, no, I don't want you to to depend on all those things. To depend on your own hands. But I want you to go with less so that you're more dependent on me. He wanted them to be completely dependent on him. And he promised to take care of those needs. That as you go, you will not be harmed, he said. And it wasn't just about, you know, moving fast. There's a bit of that in the instruction not to greet people because they have this long ceremonial greeting that they would engage in. But the main thing is he just wanted them focused on him. Don't get distracted by these other things around, by providing for yourself, by seeking to gain out of this. He said, I know you have legitimate needs, but let me take care of those things. Don't take all these extras. And so we're dependent on him. And a hard thing is being dependent not only on him, but then he said, you know, I'll provide for you through other people. You'll also be dependent on this host that will bring you into their house. In verse 7, Jesus said, Stay there eating and drinking, whatever they give you, for the worker deserves his wages. Do not move around from house to house, but when you enter a town and you're welcomed, eat whatever is offered to you. If you're a picky eater, then you might be a little hard. But also, if you're like me and you have a hard time just accepting generosity in general, that might be kind of hard. I mean, how many people have a little bit of a hard time accepting generosity from others? I don't know what that is. It's a little uncomfortable. (laughs) But Jesus is calling his followers to do that. To accept the generosity of others. To not be so prideful and think that you have to control everything and you have to earn it all on your hard work and your merit. But let me, through the work of others, provide for you. Eat whatever they give you, if it's weird or gross, or not even that good. Let them be generous towards you. That's a bit of a risk. It's a risk if you're uncomfortable accepting generosity. And it's also a risk, because as you're traveling, going to the first house you enter, it's probably not going to be the nicest house, right? The biggest, most beautiful mansion with the best food is probably not going to be the first choice. But Jesus is reminding them, 
we are not there to see what we can get out of this. You're not going to stay there for two nights and then figure out who's got a better setup that you can move to. Stay at that first place, and I will provide for you. Now, can you imagine if the disciples went to one house, and they're looking across the street, and they're like, I think that house is a little better. I just, I feel called to go to that house. It's like, I wonder why. But Jesus is saying, whoever lets you in, that's going to be enough. I'm going to provide for you through them, and stay there. Eat whatever it is. And it was a few years ago, uh, my wife and I were, were traveling and visiting some friends, and, and we were staying, uh, we were visiting another church, and we were staying with the pastor and his wife, and they were really nice and really sweet, but, and we were trying to be really polite and just eat whatever they gave us, but there was a trend that there was a lot of stuff probably in their fridge that was close to or past the expiration date, and they kept feeding us. They made us a delicious soup one time, and after uh, we finished with the soup, they're like, oh, great, that was good. And then they proceeded to set the cast iron, which you don't wash cast iron in the dishwasher and then you just clean it. They proceeded to set the cast iron right on the ground for their big Newfoundland to come lick it clean. And Elena just realized, wow, I bet the dog licks it clean every single time. And then the next day, we ate soup out of that same pot. We ate the same pot. <laughs> Knowing that that sweet dog got a nice clean for us. And in that same house, um, they had they divided like their adult kids over. They had a bunch of little kids with them. We were having a good lunch. They had apple cider. Um, it was in the fall, and they had apple cider. They poured us, and and I tasted the apple cider, and I could tell it was probably near or close to the uh, expiration date. Had a bit of a kick to it. You know what I mean? It, it, uh, it was probably hard cider at that point. And I always remember um, her adult son taking a sip of the cider, and then. Exclaiming, Mom, what are you giving us? Like, what is this? This is alcoholic. And he immediately snatches it away from his kids. Like, stop it. It's so five years old. Like, this is the best cider ever. And she, she didn't know. She just didn't check the expiration date. But nonetheless, I wasn't going to bring it up. I was like, they're being generous to us. We're just going to drink this. And that's the call that, that Jesus is calling us to in this sense. Um, to let him provide for you. To let him take care of your needs. Nonetheless, we survived. We didn't get sick out of that. He protected us from it. Eat what is before you. And live expectantly. As we're dependent on God, expect that he's going to give good things. Expect that he is going to provide. Even if we do things perfectly and some people reject us, okay. But expect that the harvest is plentiful. And expect that it will work. I think it was, what, in verse 17 there where... The disciples came back and they exclaimed to Jesus, like, it actually worked. <laughs> the demons actually listened to you. People actually were healed. Expect that to happen. Don't be too surprised because it will, will take place. And, and for us, it's a little trickier um, than it was for them. This whole idea of, of not taking anything with us because the fact is that all this most of us do have bank accounts and homes, and we have these things, and as we go on mission, we're not necessarily traveling anywhere, so I don't think the call here is just to liquidate everything, but nonetheless, it's to be aware of our needs, and be aware that God is the one who provides for those things, and trusting Him in them. Maybe being that generous person who supports someone else. And trusting Him, living generously and humble. 
So that's the call. And this last point, this last call, is the call to death over weight that I think we see. Now in verse 7, you know, Jesus gave the instruction, you know, don't move from home to home. Stay in one place. And it wasn't just about dependence. But stay in one place and invest in that person. And at first we think, well wait, aren't they trying to tell as many people as possible? Aren't they trying to give this gospel to everyone they can? Shouldn't they knock on every door and put a gospel track on every windshield? But the call here is not to spread ourselves crazy thin like that. And I think Jesus is combating that tendency that we have to really spread too thinly. And he's calling us to the reality that the greatest impact we can have for his kingdom is to commit and to invest in relationships with others. And it's from that place that the Holy Spirit will work through us. That we don't just scatter and randomly talk to whoever we can. There might be a place for that. There might be situations where we have that. But the predominant call is to go deep with those around us, with those open doors that are there, to go all in. That as we seek to work for the mission of God in our community, we don't just go bang on every single door, say a quick word, and, and get out of there. We look for the open door. We go in. We invest. We show up for the friend. We, we are consistent in someone's life. That we commit to real, deep friendship, not just the occasional as a going. And it's from that place, from the gaining of influence, from, from a place of sincere love, that we do Christ's mission. Because the call of the missionary is not to find people who are projects, and then you work on them and you move on to the next. That's not how. The call is discipleship. To create disciples. And disciples have to walk alongside one another. And if we're looking to see people born again, we don't just give birth to the baby and say, sweet, job done, we're going to move on. There is now a 21, maybe 23 year process of raising that person up. And that's going to take intimacy. It's going to take relationship and depth. We don't just move on and get out of there once the, the job is done. And so we commit to death. We commit to those friendships in our lives that, that we can be there for. The time that it's going to take. I know many of us have people in our lives that we have been sharing the gospel with for years. And at times, we can seem like we're losing hope and it's not making any difference. Um, you know, it should have happened right away, but... Jesus reminds us to seek the death, to go all in, to play the long game, so to speak, and to invest in them, not for nonetheless. People don't accept Jesus right away. We don't just get out and look for someone who does. We lean in to that open door there. Because the reality in 2021, especially for those of you under 35, is that most of your friends and the people in your life are not just one conversation away from accepting Jesus. And if you think that's the case, you've probably never tried to share Jesus with someone. Okay? It's going to take time. It's going to take effort. It's going to take 
years of them building trust and seeing this faith lived out in your life um, to be fully convinced. And that's the way that Jesus wrote it up to begin with. To build relationships with Christians who love and who respect them. And from that place, the Holy Spirit will open and soften hearts and draw to himself. And so we look for open doors. And we commit to death over width. So if you see that open door, spend your whole day there. Spend some time there. Don't feel guilt and shame that you turned down a Christian friend to invest in the life of a friend who's far from Jesus. Because that is where God's gone, is to death in those places. And this is how, this is how it's slow. As we commit to be commissioned by God to live these missional lives in Rapid City or beyond, we commit to these instructions, to these behaviors. We acknowledge that the harvest is plentiful, that there's opportunity out there for the gospel. And we start with prayer. We pray that God would raise up workers for the harvest, that he would start with us. That we commit to community. We are going to grab someone alongside of us to go on this mission. We're going to invite others to speak in to the work that we're doing. We're going to depend on God, not on ourselves, not on our finances. And we commit to death over work. To investing in the lives of others and seeing God work in those places. And this is what it could look like. And this is how we rewrite that narrative of the church in decline. This is how the harvest that is plentiful is actually taken up and not just wasted in the field there as the cold winter comes. That we commit to these behaviors and we commit to the missing day. So would you bow your heads and pray for me. So Father God, once again, we ask you, the Lord of the harvest, to send out workers in your field. God, we ask that you would begin with us. Would you equip us for the work that you've set before us? Would you help us to see the buds that are blooming? Would you help us to see these open doors that you're calling us into? Would you give us the courage and the ability to walk through? And God, as we continue to learn what it means to be your image bearers and your missionary people, we thank you for your Holy Spirit with us. We thank you for the authority you've placed on us. We ask that you would continue to empower the people of common ground with your spirit, that the sick will be healed, that demons will flee, that lives will be changed by your blessing. And Father God, we thank you that regardless of the results, that you are with us, that you are by our side. Help us to lean into you when things are hard. And help us to celebrate you when things work. Jesus, we know that it is your desire and it is your heart to see people saved. We just ask that you give us your heart. Would you break our heart for the things that break yours? Would you just enliven our hearts and excite us for the things that you are excited about? As we bear your image to this world, may we look increasingly like you. So Jesus, we pray these things in your name. Amen.
Thank you for listening. We hope you have been blessed. Please join us again at Common Ground Church.